This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. Welcome to the Morning Run on BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng and Kusu Chuang. It's now 9.37 a.m. and time for the SNM show. <laughs> Two snaps. <laughs> Today we're going to be discussing a report from Apollo Asia Fund and also the book turned movie, The Big Short. Don't worry, no spoilers. We all know how that ended. Um, but let's start with um, Apollo Asia Fund, Chuang. Is it a big uh, fund manager? Well, no, not really. And I, I'm not sure what the AUMs are because it's not disclosed on the website. But it's run by a lady called Claire Barnes. And she's been actually covering Asia for nearly 40 years. And she came over with YCAR in the early 80s, I think. And she um, basically started work with James Capel in London and then came over to the Far East and covered what was then, you know, essentially frontier markets. These, so are, these are very old names. So these, these are names very old don't names. Exi- yeah, exist correct. Anymore, James right? Capel, Capel and WI, WI yeah. Car. And she also had, uh, she also ran a consulti- consultancy firm that did business with the likes of GK Go, which is, of course, today CIMB Securities. That's right. Um, and uh, she was with uh, this other company called BZW. BZW, Barclays Desert Wed. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I guess in, you know, outside of investment circles, not many people know who she is, but within those circles, she's kind of like a one of the more respected uh, fund managers in town. So she's got her own fund called the Polo Asia Fund, and she's, you know, every quarter they, she writes um, notes to her clients, updating them of, uh, you know, the state of the market. And, you know, one would assume that after 36 years of covering these markets, she kind of knows her way around the woods, and mm-hmm. she has a kind of perspective. And I chose this note because it's, it was quite interesting, because at a time when our... in when, when Asian indexes are very, very, um, have been very badly hit by the uh, ongoing oil collapse and China slowdown. Um, it's, it's you know, a, a few investors are now wondering whether it's time to get their feet back and get back into the market. And if you look at the Nikkei 225, it's down something like 10% on the year itself. 2016 down year-to-date 9.7%. The Hang Seng is down by 14% just in 2016 alone. Um, you know, the S&P down 7%. And Malaysia down something like 4%. Of course, we always are quite low beta. But, you know, in her view, she, she reckons that the markets are still very tough. And she thinks that uh, it's, it's, it's not yet time to get in. I'm not sure whether you guys agree or disagree. Well, if you look at what she has reported about her NAV, which are net asset valuations, it's down 13% since the high of August 2004. And this would put her in the league of underperformers because um, the benchmark would, of course, be the S&P 500, the index that uh, tracks the 500 largest stocks in the United States. And that uh, S&P 500 right now is at the same level of that uh, high that she hit in August 2014, but she's down 13.5% as S&P 500 is the same. But if you stretch the time period, um, you would see that from the bottom of the S&P 500 in 2010, uh, the S&P 500 has tripled. I mean, I'm talking about triple. This is the market that represents the most, uh, the biggest economy in the world, the most, uh, some would argue, the most developed economy in the world. Uh, that market has tripled like an emerging market, right? Uh, and I'm sure that, that the time focus has really an influence when you measure people's performance in managing funds. Uh, You've you got to stretch it out to a longer term time period. Well, you know, on her on her fourth quarter 2015 report, she's also got a geographical breakdown of where her assets are. And the biggest weighting right now, according to the fund, is in Japan with 22% of assets. Now, has she made the right call in, you know, in plumping for, for Japan? 
and Malaysia is, is something like 10% of the fund which I think is, is kind of right but it's still a lot, lot bigger than most component yeah. funds of the of the index right actually Japan as a market did very well last year the market yeah. was up amid all the other falls in regional and global markets so Japan has done well but uh, and the currency is a different matter altogether because as part of Abinomics um, uh, they have a currency weakening strategy which I'm sure you can hedge uh, through various kinds of instruments so um, she might have uh, put, put herself in very good state and her investors too by putting money in Japan yeah the other thing about the Apollo Asia fund is that she's <coughs> absolute return which I think is um, not the same kind of, of, of event investor you know they try and beat the index right? right so some index fund managers would just try and hug the index or what they don't know is hugging the index so the S&P does 5% a year they try and do 5 or slightly better than 5 and then the absolute return investors try and do something a lot more than the 5% that the S&P does. The problem is, and I'm not, I'm not sure whether this would work in a time like this because it's so unpredictable, is whether you can get an absolute return absolutely in times like this. Well, you have to have the guts, don't you? Yeah. Um, because she has a lot of experience in Asia, having spent most of her time here looking at the markets around here. And um, do you dare? Do you dare buy into China right now? Because uh, it's a market that offering that's offering a lot of bargains. I know that we speak to a lot of our guests on the seven a.m. segment, and they say that it's not time yet. Uh, but I guess um, that again, the time frames yeah. are different. These guests are more looking at uh, trading strategies for the short term. But she, I think she's very long term, and I, I would be really curious to know if this is the time where you make your move and buy into these. Um, some would say distress. Some would say depressed stocks so from she, China. So she's saying that they're looking at companies that they hope to hold forever. forever so they're yeah. looking at a, they're looking for value. They're looking really long term here. Yeah. So, you know, compare and contrast that kind of philosophy with, a, with a, for example, like a Kun Yu Yin. He says that in Malaysia, you can't really buy stocks to hold forever because uh, we don't have the history of a Gillette or Coca-Cola like they have in the US with Warren Buffett. They don't have 100-year-long operating histories. In Malaysia, stock exchange is very young. You know, most listed companies with transparent balance sheets can only go back, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Public bank is something like 20, 25, 30 years. So, um, in James the, you know, Hay, James one, one, exactly one of one our of other... SNM guest uh, right, actually yeah. does have a strategy to hold stocks forever. And I think it is a strategy that works because you don't waste time buying uh, companies that you don't believe in uh, and you, you trade very little on those stocks. And if you look at, uh, back to Claire Barnes, her portfolio turnover is only 13%. But she reckons that very might be low, higher in, 20, in 2016. So right, which because of the volatility. Because of volatility. So she actually means investors might take out some of their funds and flee for the hills in a way. The other thing I just want to add about this thing is, she, you know, because she's an absolute return investor, she like tries to look for individual businesses of high quality with managers of integrity with the potential to prosper despite the challenges. Now, how hard is that to find? Yeah. A good quality company with, with honest... In, managers, managers of integrity. Yeah. <laughs> right, how do you tell, right? You might look like an honest guy, Jules, but... You may be burning the answer to that is diversification. <laughs> Divers I mean, you, you can't put all There's your no eggs into one basket. Uh, you either make a big bet and make a lot of money out of it or you lose money out of it from making that uh, too big a bet. I, I mean, this is a poker game, right? You've got to try to suss out whether the market is trying to bluff you or not. And if, if you can have, have certain strategies to protect yourself in poker, um, more so with the stock market, I think. So if you ask Bill Gates this, right? And, he, I, you know, for example, diversification, the first syllable in diversification is die, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm serious, right? You so Bill Gates was. Very you can fam- make up anything yeah, from know, any right? word, right? Bill Gates is very famous for saying he doesn't invest in anything else other than Microsoft. And look at where he is. He's focused all his eggs in one basket. He calls the shots. He knows where it's going. And that's why he's the second or su- richest man. I, in the world I want now. to draw your attention to uh, all that paper that uh, CIMB issued for their employees, right? A few years ago, and I think that a lot of people would have made uh, some money out of that. But if that that kind of paper was issued uh, a few years ago, um, you would be as an employee losing money right now oh, because yeah, money, uh, hand uh, over the face. shares. Uh, I think it's not a very good form of diversification uh, if you actually just buy the shares of the company that you work with rather than uh, hedge your bets and uh, buying into the general uh, local or even global economy. I, I think you have to do that because there's a lot of innovation out there. And Microsoft, uh, for the record, uh, is now uh, you know not not the most valuable stock yeah. in the world. Apple has taken over Google, Amazon, and what have you, right? Even Alibaba and Microsoft is desperately trying to uh, basically uh, get ahead of the game. And not every company is going to be a Microsoft. You know what I mean? You're you're not going to get Bill Gates's uh, return on investment the same way you would any other company. Correct, but I think the difference here is because Bill Gates, you know. The American listed corporation doesn't really have that many family holding structures, you know, private companies to which they move assets in and out all the time. You know, so I guess his wealth is really concentrated in the listed vehicle. And, you know, he's in charge of it as opposed to working for someone. He's in charge of the business. He knows what's going on. He can call the shots. Okay, so you're making arguments on both sides. So yes to diversification or die to diversification? (laughs) (laughs) It depends. I I think if you know you're on to a good thing, if you're running the ship yourself, you're confident of of the prospects then why would you invest in anything else? Well, well then I, I, you know, for example, my own company, it's not listed. Uh, I kind of know what it is, but there's a certain strategy I have for it. And because of that strategy, I have to make calls on other investment classes to make sure that I've got some kind of respectable return. I'm looking at the markets now and I'm wondering whether it's time to get in. And I think I agree with Claire Barnes on this. It is that it's still too warm to get into the water. Well, there, there is also the other option of doing your job well, right? Uh, employees actually, if they, if they do their jobs well, make a lot more money in salaries and remunerations and bonuses than from actually trading the stock for which they're working at. Because it's only logical. If, um, if you want your stock to be successful and your company to be successful, you've got to hire the right talent. And if you are part of that category of people who are very talented, then you would actually outperform your stock price, I think. Melissa Chuang and Julian here on the SNM show. It's a bit delayed, but okay, I'll take it. We're <laughs> it's a slow whip. <laughs> we're uh, looking at a book by Michael Lewis, The Big Shot. It's been turned into a movie um, with uh, several nominations for awards. A dramatic retelling of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Um, and from the point of view of the people who benefited from them, it's from that. Yeah, so I tried to wait a few weeks before, you know, doing this this item with uh, with you guys, right? Because I did want to have a spoiler. Okay, so anyone who hasn't watched the movie and Switch doesn't want now. to know anything about it, I allow you to change the no, channel. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't do that. Oh, don't oh, we do won't, that. oh, we won't give spoilers. But you know what? It's not really a spoiler That's now, right. shall we? No. Uh, it's, it's more of we know what's happened and you know the premise it's, of the movie. It's but a retelling you, of history. We know how that ended, right? But if you absolutely, absolutely don't want to know, catch the podcast after you've watched the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so this, basically Michael Lewis's um, um, book, The Big Shot, it's about the greed of bankers and it's about the complicit uh, um, agreement which the other stakeholders in the financial industry has in, in terms of the whole collapse of the financial system. Okay, So what happened essentially 
was it all started with an instrument called subprime mortgages, which is basically it gave mortgages to people who couldn't afford to buy houses the ability to buy houses. And um, these were people who didn't have proper jobs, didn't, couldn't qualify for normal bank loans. These were the lower middle tier or the lower classes of American society who, who didn't qualify to get a loan to buy a house, right? The bank somehow found a way to give them mortgages, which is why they call subprime, because they're hardly anything but, they're anything but prime. And then what they did on top of that, they gave them 105, 110%, 120% of the, of, the, of the mortgage value. So if, if for example, the house costs 100,000 ringgit, they would actually give you 120,000 ringgit or $120,000 on your 100,000 house so you could actually borrow more money to do some renovations to have some cash in your pocket. And then to buy some, uh, an oven or a dishwasher or, or to, to buy an iPod or whatever <laughs> in those days. <laughs> sure, which then, is so essential for a home. Oh, yeah. And then what they did was they packaged all these subprime mortgages into these, into these exotic instruments. And I'm going to cite this Goldman Sachs instrument. Called, it was so opaque and so complex that its sales traders didn't even know what it meant, right? They were called synthetic subprime mortgage bond-backed collateralized debt obligations. <laughs> what a fancy the name. Fancy name, right? Essentially, if you're... It was just uh, essentially a house of cards. It, it That's how it was. Essentially, I am... Let's say I am trying to sell you, Melissa, some handbags, right? And uh, I'm telling you that in these handbags, uh, in this, in, in this uh, basket, there are 100 handbags, uh, but only 67% of them are Hermes and the rest are bags from China, oh, imitation. So but still, I'm, 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 I'm just passing this off as everything is Hermes. So you're buying into it. And guess what? You know, if you did some investigation like Michael uh, Burry in the show, he went around looking at his subprime actual houses. I mean, he, he was one of the only guys who looked who into the, work, yeah. the, the research of, of what was containing these uh, baskets of uh, investment vehicles. And he went around driving around looking at these houses and the, the, they, f they found, um, you know, pe homeless people um, living in those houses. Um, or houses paying, abandoned. Pay, even, yeah. uh, abandoned and paying rental that was not passed on to the bank. Uh, you know, the houses were called up uh, by the banks for uh, delayed payments and so on. And it was a very, very scary situation, I guess, a turning point for that investor at the time who shorted, uh, shorted selling stuff that you don't have in order to make a profit, who shorted these stuff to make a killing. Yeah, this, so this guy, Michael Byron, he was actually a doctor, right? And he, he was actually quite good at, at day trade or night trading because after his, his hours were done, he was trading the stock markets. And then he, no he noticed these, these shonky instruments that were being you know, worth billions and billions of dollars. And he decided that this would be the best bet. So he, he quit his physician. He quit being a physician. He began a fund. And he did so well selecting stocks. And then later into these exotic instruments, he made so much money. Then later on, the big banks caught on and they started shorting before even telling their own investors. So all the big banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they're all in on the game. And Goldman Sachs particularly, and that's why th they've got such a bad reputation today, they were also complicit in... in in getting the ratings agencies to give these <laughs> these exotic instruments AAA ratings to hoodwink investors so that they could be selling these instruments while they themselves were getting Remember that Hermes, right? Uh, only only uh, t t 67% of the basket are, are Hermes and the rest are bags from China. And that's exactly what Goldman's uh, tried to do, going yeah. to the ratings agency and passing them off as Hermes quality. Uh, but, you know, they made a lot of money from these bets against people who lost a lot of money. The economies around the world saw unprecedented un unemployment. Yeah. We saw that uh, you know, double-digit unemployment in in Europe. Okay, so so that was that was my struggle with the movie, the book, and the movie. You're you're essentially rooting for the guys 
who are the bad guys but are portrayed as the good guys fighting the bad banks. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? They're trying to portray I, uh, Michael Burry as being remorseful. Yeah, as yeah. being this this fractured, broken that man. He almost know? didn't want the $1 billion in profits. It was almost like a counterculture against yeah. Wall Street and, and yeah. Brad Pitt's, uh, I can't remember the name of his, Ben something. Um, and his character was, you know, all morally outraged about that. But it was really difficult to to swallow because it felt in a way that you were rooting for guys who made money off the back of people losing houses and jobs. Yeah. So, so what what have we learned from here? No, no one was jailed uh, in prison. Yeah. No one has taken responsibility none of the for this. Alan Greenspan didn't go to jail. Uh, none of the ratings agencies went to jail. None of the big banks went to jail. Uh, they're still as rich as ever. Um, you know. And I think that was the crux of the story, yeah, right? Yeah, right. to show that in the end... Who, who took accountability for that? Nobody. Nobody did, right? And the, the question we have to ask ourselves, did we learn anything from this whole uh, shambles? Now, Probably I, not. I, I did a grill with Lord Turner, of uh, the ex-chairman of the UK's Financial Services Authority, and he said that actually these guys were not breaking the law, so it's hard to jail any of them. They might have acted unconscionably, but uh, as with other products in the market, uh, acting unconscionably is not necessarily against the law. And that's why till today, uh, no one has been jailed. But, you know, in the past, uh, during this, this is not the first crisis that we've seen, right? We've seen the Great Depression that mm-hmm. happened in the 19, late 1920s. And after the time, a law called the Glass-Steagall Act was passed to separate banks from trading their depositors' money because banks at the time were going crazy yeah. uh, buying into stocks that they underwrote and, and then um, everything just fell apart and the banks were became very wobbly and uh, that that's some that's a story that's very familiar right and then it, they it repealed happened, the law and the banks again yeah. started so, to trade their so the glass money. glass was actually revoked uh, in 2002 yeah. and after the global financial crisis President Obama has again come up uh, with other laws uh, that include the Volk- Volcker rule mm-hmm. uh, which is that again the same thing banks should not trade their customers money so in other words, the message to people is you have no choice but to invest your money. you just got to know what the hell you're doing because if you don't, don't go near the water because it's full of sharks. And you know, the, in Malaysia, we kind of like see the start of all this exotica, right? Yeah. We, see, we see things like SPACs. We see things like business trust. We see things like REITs and, and stuff like that. You know, exotic acronyms that could so easily balloon into 12, 12 you know, kind of like 12 syllables like Uma Pagan's name, right? <laughs> many syllables. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, many syllables without, you know, <laughs> and also, and it can be trouble. And and also, governments are just um, in on a game themselves, and and really uh, exposing their ignorance by setting up support funds, right, for the stock market. I mean, these are just pure. F- futile because when traders decide to act against you uh, there's nothing you can do about it look at china they have hundreds of billions of dollars that are, that can be used as an arsenal against the stock, uh, fall in stock market and yet the stock market has been routed to the tune of trillions of dollars it's really no point setting up a support fund and worst of all you don't teach people about taking risk uh, you think that the government is always going to bail you out but that, that's not true not true can we let, is that the moral of the story from the Moral of the story is... Will the government always bail you out? No, don't. <laughs> the, the as far as the banks are concerned, I mean, these banks are operating on that kind of sentiment. Mm. So in Washington, the banks actually rule Congress. Is the same type of thing happening in Malaysia? Oh, Pregnant there you silence. go. Let's end on that note. It's now 8.59am. You've been listening to the SNM Show with Julian Ng and Kusu Chuang, and I'm Melissa Idris. 
Uh, news at 10 o'clock is coming up next on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.